Equity markets had a very tough week on bad news from retailers. It seems clear now that inflation is increasing producer costs while it reduces consumer spending. That and other evidence points to an impending recession. China cut its mortgage reference rate in an effort to boost its sick property sector. Asian stock markets rose in response. Russia's ruble remains surprisingly stable, and the country still hasn't defaulted on its foreign debt since way back when Vladimir Lenin disclaimed the Tsar's foreign debts in 1918. But this week, Sri Lanka formally defaulted on its debt as the country stumbles through a deep economic crisis. Crypto lobbyists, legislators, and aspiring regulators had a busy week arguing over the future of cryptocurrency after last week's crypto crash. In this edition of Commerce Code, identity and standards, two tiny big ideas from this week's Financial Data Forum. Dan Carell here, and this is Commerce Code, brought to you by DCA, the Digital Commerce Alliance. Thanks for joining us for insights into the evolving world of digital commerce. U.S. retailer Target's stock lost a quarter of its value this week after reporting a 52% first quarter profit drop. Executives blamed higher expenses and consumers backing off on non-essential purchases due to inflation. Nominal U.S. retail sales did increase nine-tenths of a percent in April, down from 1.4% in March. But because the statistic isn't adjusted for inflation, higher prices likely accounted for much of the increase. Equifax data showed a recent increase in delinquencies on personal loans, car loans, and credit cards among subprime borrowers. As reported by the Wall Street Journal this week, 60-day delinquencies in personal lines of credit rose from 10.4% to 11.3% in the last year. Credit card delinquencies rose even further from 9.8% to 11.1%. The hot U.S. housing market is moving towards being merely warm. April sales dropped to their slowest pace in two years as rising mortgage rates, high home prices, and perhaps a looming sense of economic uncertainty moderated some of the market's exuberance. The CEO of Wells Fargo said on Tuesday that there's no question of an economic downturn in the U.S., and a recession looks hard to avoid. His concerns were focused on the impact of increased consumer borrowing costs driven by the Fed's interest rate hikes as the central bank battles inflation. Last week's crypto crash reverberated throughout this week. Bitcoin dropped to under $30,000, extending a seven-week decline, while the policy world on both sides of the Atlantic debated how to regulate cryptocurrencies. G7 financial leaders this week called for the Financial Stability Board, a global advisory body, to develop consistent and comprehensive cryptocurrency regulation. Crypto asset regulation is on the G7 summit agenda next month. EU Financial Services Commissioner Myraid McGuinness said the EU and the US could, quote, lead the way on a shared international approach to regulating crypto. She pointed to the markets in crypto assets regulation adopted by the EU Parliament in March. In the U.S., SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce suggested that after last week's events, there could be movement to enact new regulations. This did nothing to clear up whose responsibility it is to regulate cryptocurrencies in the United States. The SEC, CFTC, CFPB, elements of Treasury, and of course, state governments all play a rapidly evolving role, or at least they want to. And of course, there's the Department of Justice and the FBI when it comes to enforcement. If you're keeping track, the CFTC is the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and the CFPB is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. I'm not sure what makes something a bureau rather than agency, but it does sound kind of cool. The chairman of the CFTC suggested this week that more enforcement actions are likely 
The CFTC and SEC are essentially in a turf war over who will regulate crypto markets since it's unclear whether crypto is a security, commodity, or something else. Of course, there's also Congress and congressional lobbyists. The Blockchain Association and the Chamber of Digital Commerce were busy this week. Senator Cynthia Loomis, a Republican from Wyoming, said she will release a crypto bill for discussion this coming week. In addition to addressing consumer protection and taxation issues, the proposed legislation is said to attempt to resolve whether and when a crypto asset is a security or a commodity or perhaps something else and which agency will have oversight, whether it's the SEC or the CFTC or someone else. In digital payments news, Elon Musk said this week that he would like to turn Twitter into a super app akin to Tencent's WeChat by adding payments functionality and a more comprehensive suite of social media elements. Today on the show, we're reflecting on some key points from Tuesday's Financial Data Forum, an event hosted by the Digital Commerce Alliance. This week's Financial Data Forum topic was best practices in data personalization, transparency, security, and interoperability. We had great in-depth conversations with guests from five DCA member companies, TransUnion, Collinson Value Dynamics, Petadata, Vantage Score, and Discover. They each shared a lot of key details of what they're doing, and they gave us the view from where they each sit. But with some time to reflect on both the details and the big themes, I wanted to use today's show to pull out two key points that I'm still thinking about. Both, in a way, are details, the kind of industry-specific things that nobody outside digital commerce is likely to focus on. But I think each one is a mustard seed. Mustard seeds are one or two millimeters long. They're so small, they're almost invisible, especially if your eyes are as old and your glasses as huge as mine. But these minuscule things have a powerful taste, which any six-year-old can tell you all about after he's slathered Grey Poupon up and down his hot dog. Yes, of course I did that. First, anonymity and identity. Pietro Grandinetti from Pentadata talked about various aspects of open banking and cryptocurrency. It was a helpful technical conversation, and Financial Data Forum members who missed it can catch Pietro this coming Tuesday, the 24th, in a webinar I'm doing with him. He and I are going to go deep on this topic together. There's a lot more to unpack. One of the things Pietro touched on was know your customer, KYC. I can't do justice to everything Pietro said on Tuesday, but I did want to double check on the significance of know your customer in 2022. Financial institutions have been concerned about know your customer issues for a long time, arguably since the very, very beginning. In recent decades, AML, or anti-money laundering regulations, have led big banks to build very big compliance infrastructures so they will know, or hopefully know, who they're dealing with. That's the root of AML, knowing where the money came from, is about knowing whose it really is. For example, one sort of customer banks are worried about is politically exposed persons, PEPs. A PEP is someone who has enough power or influence that they could be involved in corruption. Take me, for example. Having no power or influence and being related neither by blood nor marriage to anyone who does, I have to say, nobody has ever offered me a bribe. Perhaps because they know just how pathetic my personal power index is. I just made that up, but let's run with it, PPI. I can attest that banks have been completely relaxed about taking my money. It might also be that I've never deposited enough to catch their attention or possibly showed up with a suitcase full of cash. There are plenty of reasons, however, not just legal compliance, why an institution wants to know who its customers are. So, cryptocurrency. A popular misconception about cryptocurrency is that it's anonymous. 
That perceived anonymity is part of the libertarian dream that, for some, cryptocurrency represents. Crypto is increasingly making connections into the flow of commerce, which means banking and financial services institutions that have know-your-customer obligations under the law. Crypto, though, is on the blockchain, and the blockchain is inherently public. So, is it anonymous? We might think of the anonymity of the blockchain a little like the anonymity of any other internet element, like Wikipedia, for example. Wikipedia entries don't have prominently listed contributors, since there are dozens or hundreds, maybe, for each one. But it's also true that the fingerprints of every editor are in every entry, and those fingerprints can be seen clearly in the History tab. Editors can write under a pseudonym, but true anonymity is hardly assured, especially for the most active editors. Their fingerprints are there. So there's a sort of anonymity to cryptocurrencies, sort of like Wikipedia. It can be preserved. After all, the identity of the person who created Bitcoin itself still isn't really known. We just have a pseudonym, Satoshi Nakamoto. Elon Musk thinks it's a prominent and well-known character in the Bitcoin world, and he's named that person, but I'm pretty sure it was either Tom Hanks or Dolly Parton, or possibly both. They succeed at absolutely everything they touch, and just last night, I was again reminded that half the things we like were actually created by one or the other of those two. But as for anonymity, U.S. authorities have had several successes this year reclaiming large chunks of stolen Bitcoin and identifying and then arresting people accused of the theft. So there's an aspect of anonymity, but everything is on the blockchain and the blockchain is public. From the perspective of law enforcement, blockchain is easier to deal with than a true bearer instrument like cash because it's a lot harder to know where cash has been. Anonymity is a big deal in our culture right now in so many ways. This is how I think the issue is a mustard seed. Exactly how anonymous Bitcoin is is a tiny technical issue. It's hard to see with the naked eye, but it's really powerful and important. At the ground level, we all want to remain anonymous from the perspective of hackers. Many understandably want to be anonymous for purposes of avoiding ex-boyfriends and the like. Fair enough. But anonymity does nothing to elevate the quality of conversation on social media, to put it mildly. And we now know that something as soft as the tone of our global online conversations can have some pretty sharp effects in the real world. Anonymity in the context of taxation, financial dealings, or compliance is increasingly under scrutiny for obvious reasons. We live in an era of yachts fleeing to safer ports as if they could drive themselves, which, at least at this stage, I don't think they can. They're fleeing because we're no longer willing to shrug at the question of who owns them and where that person's money came from. So our discussion this week about how we deal with identity and anonymity in the context of consumer financial data isn't just insider industry details. It's an active part of a turning point for the world on how the 7 billion of us are going to go forward for the rest of this century how we're going to know enough about one another to serve the right and necessary interests depending on context. What those interests are, and how they get balanced, is a matter of big ideas, like the fundamental stuff we dealt with for a hundred years during the Enlightenment and democratic revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries. Everyone, industry, government, the average person, will play a part in getting those answers right. The second mustard seed issue in our Financial Data Forum discussion this week was standards. The presentations from TransUnion and Discover addressed it directly. Everyone touched it to some extent. Our whole world is built on standards, from shoe sizes to USB ports to conversion from metric to imperial when you're cooking. For the record, I still don't understand why sometimes I need a size 13 shoe and sometimes an 11 and a half fits just fine. Shoe sizes are apparently that standard. As for the kitchen, my preferred method is not to measure things at all, which eliminates the need for conversion. I have at times been relieved of my cooking duties. Here's the bigger point about standards. When you're operating without standards, 
And on the margins, the financial services sector is doing this in so many ways right now. Market participants will just be creative. They'll make the adjustments they need to make in order to move fast and get things done. This is capitalism's great strength. But when the market has no settled rules, it's like playing a contact sport with no consensus on what exactly the rules are. The early days of American college football were like this, and deaths on the field were terrifyingly common. The early days of ice hockey were, too. Lots of fistfights. <laughs> of course, now football is perfectly safe and hockey is basically a bunch of pacifists out for a skate. I mean, it was invented by Canadians. The dangers from lack of standards in digital commerce are many, but the one that caught my attention the most this week was cybersecurity risk. We've talked with a few different players on Commerce Code in the past who laid out the problems with how data is shared by consumers through apps or with and from their banks given the lack of a universal standard for how this all should be done. With no definitive standards in this area, it's harder to lock down a secure sharing protocol. From the hacker's perspective, it's like having a dozen doors into Fort Knox. I just checked and, you know, Fort Knox doesn't have a dozen doors. It's got one. It's very well designed. Pretty easy to protect. Intensifying cybersecurity risk might be the impetus to close 11 doors by adopting a universal standard, whether we call it open banking or succumb to the desire to create some ugly new acronym. When we think of standards, we sometimes think of law and regulation. And in our conversation this week, Paul Siegfried of TransUnion and I talked a little bit about the difference between private sector standards and public standards. There are lots of differences, but in the digital economy, the most consequential difference might be agility. Law and regulation can be very, very hard to change. In the securities world, for example, we're working with a lot of law that hasn't changed one bit since 1934. It'll be 100 years old pretty soon, and it's being used in some cases to regulate digital assets and even cryptocurrencies. Private standards are more agile, and that makes a big difference. On that front, I'll close with one of my favorite stories about standards, private and public. As I admitted this week, I'm a bit of a standards nerd because there are a lot of good stories and it's interesting stuff. And this particular story is about time zones. I always assumed, as I think most people do, that time zones must have been set by some government somewhere. They weren't. They were invented by American railroad executives. First off, you have to ask why anyone needed a time zone. And the answer was, well, until stuff started to move really fast from one place to another, nobody did. So until railroads got fairly serious, the universal approach was that every town knew what time it was in that town. Anyone with a sundial could tell you when it was noon in that place. What else did you need to know? Well, if you're in charge of preventing massive trains from running into each other on the tracks, it turns out that you do need to know a little bit more than what time folks in Peoria think it is where they are. You need a standard. So railroad industry leaders got together, I think it was in Indiana, and agreed on slicing up the country into four parts. That's basically the system we have today. They weren't worried about the whole world, of course, since trains don't fly, but they broke the country into chunks that formed 1 24th of the Earth, roughly. So the system they settled on more or less extended globally. Note that the railroad standard was just to prevent trains from crashing. It didn't have to extend to everybody else, but in practice it spread into universal usage. The government blessed it several decades later. A couple postscripts. First, there's much more I won't say about the long life and maybe impending death of daylight savings time or summertime and the role of the government and one surprisingly influential Kiwi bug collector in that story, that's another podcast. Second, airlines don't use time zones at all. They have a standard that is far smarter than that. They just use coordinated universal time, which is pretty much Greenwich mean time everywhere. Keeping planes from running into each other takes a lot of care and precision. And for that, 
a single global standard is crucially important. The world of digital commerce will likely never be able to settle on a single global standard for all critical things. But moving from where we are now to a better place that's characterized by standards and consistency of expectations is a critical task for the Digital Commerce Alliance and for every player in the industry. To find out more about the latest trends in digital commerce and digital advertising, check out our website, www.digcomall.org. For the Digital Commerce Alliance, take care of yourself and take care of each other. God bless. This is Dan Carell, signing off. 